When did you first learn about forgiveness? See if your story is similar to mine. When I was a child, there was a ritual to forgiveness. When I hurt someone or did something wrong, I was expected to say, I'm sorry. And the other person was expected to say, I forgive you. It felt like an exchange of goods, an apology traded for forgiveness. The thing was, oftentimes this ritual didn't feel very good. Sometimes I wasn't ready to say, I'm sorry. Sometimes I wasn't sorry. Sometimes I wasn't ready to forgive. Sometimes an apology wasn't enough to make things all right. And then there was the power imbalance. The person who transgressed was dependent upon the magnanimity of the person who'd been wronged. There was almost a superiority in saying, I forgive you. I really didn't like playing either role in this little drama, and I'd pretty much dismissed forgiveness as a problematic social nicety when I attended a week-long Quaker retreat on forgiveness. Little did I know that my notions of forgiveness would be turned upside down that by the end of the week, I'd come to see forgiveness as a fundamental spiritual practice and would realize that as much as I needed to forgive others, I needed to forgive myself and forgive life or the universe for the pain it had thrown my way. I also learned that forgiveness is a very big topic. After participating in the week-long retreat and then in a semester-long seminary class on forgiveness, I'm well aware of how rich and deep and life-changing this topic can be and how little time we have together today. So my hope is to plant some seeds, offer some questions, some ideas to chew on, an opportunity to reconsider what forgiveness is all about. The dictionary offers two perspectives on forgiveness. The outward social ritual I learned as a child, so forgiveness as formally granting pardon, but also an internal change. So forgiveness as letting go of anger or hurt or resentment. It's that inner change that I want to focus on today. During the forgiveness retreat, we did an exercise that stunned me in its simplicity and in its profundity. We were asked to complete two sentences. 
when I forgive, I feel, and when I don't forgive, I feel. How would you answer those questions? Here's what came out at the retreat. When I forgive, I feel giddy, purged, fluid, spacious, loving, non-judgmental, relieved, joyful, light, released, ready for something else, open, calm, more in control, free. When I don't forgive, I feel obsessed, angry, defensive, resentful, guilty, righteous indignation, stuck, hurt, distracted, grieving, morally superior, anxious, depressed, weighed down, sad, small, imbalanced, fearful, limited. Listening to these responses, I was moved by how much pain we carry and how it weighs us down and spills over onto others. In contrast, the lightness that can come with forgiveness, renewed energy, passion, zest for life, seems almost like wings. What might blossom in the space created by forgiveness? How might the energy spent holding onto a hurt be better used? Suddenly, the work of forgiveness seems worth it. And I use the word work intentionally because forgiveness often requires work. As we consider what forgiveness is, it's also important to consider what forgiveness is not. So, here are five common myths. Myth number one, forgiveness requires forgetting. After all, we say forgive and forget. Truth number one, some actions can be forgiven but not forgotten. Sometimes it's important to remember. Two examples. Ava Kaur was one of the many twins used for Dr. Mengele's medical experiments during World War II. Remarkably, Ava chose to forgive both privately and publicly 
the people who killed her parents and tortured her and her sister. Eva dedicated her life to Holocaust education, to making sure others remember. Eva forgave, but didn't forget. Example number two. Azim Kamisa forgave the teenager who murdered his 20-year-old son during a pizza jacking. Azim has devoted his life's work to preventing a repeat of the circumstances that led to his son's death. Azim, too, has forgiven but not forgotten. Myth number two. Forgiving someone means that you condone their behavior. Truth number two. Forgiveness is about releasing the hold the situation has on you. In no way does it imply that the behavior was acceptable. Think again about Ava and Azim. We can forgive those who hurt us while doing everything in our power to prevent them from doing it again, to us or to someone else. Myth number three, forgiveness is a sign of weakness. Truth number three, if anything, forgiveness is a sign of strength. Think of some of the paragons of forgiveness. Desmond Tutu, the Dalai Lama, Mohandas Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., Thich Nhat Hanh. These folks are good company and as strong as they come. Myth number four. Forgiveness is a one-shot deal. You decide to forgive and you're done. Truth number four. Most of us have to work at forgiveness. It may take weeks, months, even years to forgive the big hurts. Sometimes we have to forgive ourselves for not yet being ready to forgive or for how long it's taking. And myth number five. Forgiveness involves at least two people, the person who was harmed and the person whose action was harmful. Truth number five. If we define forgiveness as letting go of the pain that burdens us, then it becomes possible to forgive someone you may never see again, or someone you may never want to see again, or someone you may never meet. It even becomes possible to forgive ourselves or forgive that which is beyond our control. So, 
I've talked about what forgiveness is and why you might want to practice it. If you're at all persuaded by my words, the next big question is how? True forgiveness is more than simply saying the words, I forgive you. Few of us can forgive immediately. Most of us need to start by finding healthy ways to express the anger and hurt, by having someone else witness and affirm the pain we're experiencing. But when that anger and hurt become weights around our necks, when they drag us down and get in the way of our leading our lives, we may want to consider a shift. But how? There are many forgiveness practices, some of which we'll touch on this morning. If you want to go deeper, there are more books, workshops, videos, and websites on forgiveness than you might imagine. Among other things, there's an excellent article from the Mayo Clinic, which may seem like a non sequitur, except that there's a growing body of research showing how forgiveness can strengthen our immune systems. Dr. Dean Ornish says, the most selfish thing you can do for yourself is to forgive other people. The key to forgiveness is creating an internal shift. Buddhist teacher Jack Cornfield says that forgiveness is giving up all hope of having a better past. Forgiveness is giving up all hope of having a better past. So if we can't have a better or different past, sometimes we can shift how we think about that past. In his book, Forgive for Good, Stanford forgiveness expert Dr. Fred Luskin design, describes a process of transforming what he calls a grievance story. You know, that story you've told again and again with increasing embellishments about just how badly you were wronged. The more we tell these stories, the more attached to them we can become. Transforming them can free us, and sometimes all it takes is a single word. UU minister Lynn Gardner tells how a grievance that plagued her for years was transformed when she replaced the word should with could. Rather than saying, he should have been there, she tried saying, he could have been there. And the hold that story had on her loosened a bit. How might you shift some of the stories you tell about ways you've been wronged? 
Another approach to forgiveness involves strategies for softening and opening our hearts, for shifting that angry energy. Fred Luskin talks about shifting where we place our attention by inwardly changing the channel from what he calls the life sucks channel to the sacred holiness channel. Or if that's too much to stomach, how about the gratitude channel? Or the look at the beautiful sunset channel? Similarly, Darlene Cohen writes about acknowledging the pain, but also paying attention to things other than the pain. Making your life so rich that no pain can commandeer it. Other forgiveness techniques focus on finding compassion for the person who hurt us. Some folks try to imagine the other person as a baby, sweet and innocent. Some try to forgive that person's parents or grandparents for the hurts that contributed to this person's hurtful action. Some put a picture of that person on their altar and practice wishing them well. Buddhist metta, or loving-kindness practice, is a classic way of doing this work. We wish goodness first for ourselves, then for those we love, then for neighbors and acquaintances, then for our community, then for those who have wronged us, and finally, for all beings. Quaker Connie McPeak developed a variation of this practice that she calls the Arms of God Prayer. See if you can wrap your imagination around this image or tweak it so that it works for you. McPeak would imagine herself held lovingly in one of God's arms. And then she'd imagine her ex-husband, who had left her and their two small children for another woman, held lovingly in another of God's arms. Whatever spiritual gifts she wished for herself, she also had to wish for her ex. When she began this practice, she admits that she prayed through tightly clenched teeth, referring to her, S, her, to her ex as an SOB and imagining him very far away. Eventually, though, she says the anger and pain were transformed into compassion for him and for her. And then there's ritual. You might write out your grievance and release it by burning or burying the paper. You might put your grievance into a stone and then throw it into the ocean. 
you might light a candle, pray for release, and blow it out. You might dance the grievance and then let it go. So those are just a few practices that can cultivate forgiveness. I'd like to close with another Fred Luskin story. Every time Fred gives a talk on forgiveness, people come up to him afterward and praise his work and how much sense it makes, except not in their case. <laughs> if you only knew what happened to me, they say, and proceed to tell him in great detail why their situation is an exception. Indeed, one of the questions we considered in our forgiveness class was whether some acts are unforgivable. We read about some of the vilest things one human can do to another. And we read of people's decisions to forgive or not. After the class, classmate Lynn Gardner wrote, I came to believe that while not everything needs to be forgiven, there isn't anything that someone, somewhere, wouldn't choose to forgive. Forgiveness is a choice. It's not always an easy choice. I'm not convinced it's always the best choice, but I am convinced that we write it off far too often, or we want to forgive but don't know how. And so, I invite you to consider the hurts that are weighing you down, sapping your energy, and preventing you from living fully. Might any of these hurts be eased by cultivating forgiveness? Might you try practicing one of these techniques for a few weeks or months and see if anything changes? It's your choice. Amen.